Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. Hi, I'm Baron Bremner, and today on Joint Effort, we have Dr. Ryan Nielsen. Uh, Ryan, you studied here in Des Moines mm-hmm. at Des Moines University, where I studied also. And then afterwards, uh, tell us more about your training. Uh, so I initially grew up in Palatine, uh, suburb of Chicago. Uh, I eventually went to uh, Indiana University for undergrad, Miami for grad school, and I, I did come back here to DMU for medical school. Um, residency in Michigan uh, at Botsford uh, for orthopedics, and I did some specialized training in trauma in Indianapolis as well as some pediatrics in Cincinnati, which is really good. The Botsford's pretty trauma-heavy, isn't it? It was. It yeah. was. It was. We had a few big traumatologists that worked there as well yeah. as downtown receiving. So, um, And then Palatine is a suburb of... Chicago? Northwest suburb, yeah. yeah. I've got a few friends from college that were from there. So you did your ortho residency around Detroit and got some uh, pediatric training there too. And then what did you do after you were done? So you were an orthopedic surgeon. Um, you know, what was it that piqued your interest about orthopedic traumatology and, and what did you do about training for that? Sure. Um, kind of rewind a little bit. Uh, before I even went to, to college, I was a mechanic uh, downtown Chicago for a few years and worked on GM and Porsche. I was like kind of tinkering, fixing things. Oh, cool. Went back to school. Um, so I think my intern year of, of residency, I kind of knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to fix. So yeah. trauma was kind of a, a given for me, and I really liked it from the get-go. So so did you know that you were going to do orthopedics right away, too, in, in medical school? I did. Because of that? Mm-hmm. And uh, do you still tinker and stuff, or not really with cars or anything? Not as much as I used to. You don't have a shop recently. or anything? Like a no, sweet no. shop? No. Man cave I, or I wish, yeah. Okay. Eventually, maybe. But yeah, that's cool. Um, did you come from a family of tinkerers and stuff like that then, like uh, mechanics or anything? My dad, yeah. He, he yeah. taught you how to change oil and stuff oh, like yeah. that? A lot of plumbing, carpentry, all this stuff on the side, and fixing cars. We wanted to rebuild the car eventually. We kind of started and yeah. put that on hiatus for now. That's super helpful for dexterity and stuff. I, mm-hmm. You know, I worry about my children and their, their ilk, you know, what's going to happen in the future. Because, you know, sure. you and I both had summer jobs and we were working with our hands doing construction or me- mechanical stuff. And sure. People don't do that as much anymore. Um, I mean, maybe if they're driving uh, robotic surgery devices or something, they'll be amazing with it. But just like using a screwdriver and using a socket wrench and things like that that we we uh, take naturally because we did it all of our lives. It's uh, I hope that that's not a problem in the near exactly. future when I yeah. when I need my hip or knee replaced. Yeah. Um, so you are married. Yes. And you have children. Yes. So I actually met my wife here. Okay. Uh, during medical school, second year. Uh, and we actually went into the lottery for residency and ended up in the same place, which worked out, and we got married. We have two kids, and uh, we're back here. She's a physician, too. She's family practice. Okay. So the lottery, like, you guys could have, I mean, you can't, you, so normally when you're just a single person ranking your favorite residencies, you put in, like, I want to go here, 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 here. How does that play out when you have two people? So you can couples match. Uh, so... It sounds like like a Tinder app thing or something like that, no? <laughs> in, in a professional way, perhaps. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, I suppose there's pros and cons to each one, depending on the strength of each applicant. Um, but we ended up both liking several of the, uh, the hospitals and residencies in, in Detroit, uh, specifically Botsford, Beaumont, one of those. And uh, the program directors talked quite a bit, and uh, one liked her, one liked me, and they ranked us highly, and we ended up getting it together. So That's great. It, it worked out well. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, it's amazing that they have that. I mean, I could imagine 20 years ago they probably didn't have any kind of couples no. match thing, but it's obviously it makes sense now. Um, can you tell me, before you dive into some orthopedic traumatology type things, tell me more about your um, overseas volunteer work. 
Uh, yeah, so at the, the conclusion of um, medical school here, we went to uh, Tanzania in Africa. It was more of a clinic, uh, clinical-based um, uh, medicine type of uh, overseas work, uh, working with a lot of the underserved population, which was the first time I had an experience with that. Um, but a lot of remote villages and things like that that had uh, what they kind of called spiritual leaders, but no formal uh, medicine uh, or at least medical treatment. So there was a lot of uh, mm -hmm. outreach clinics there, um, which was which was very eye-opening. So not a lot of orthopedics, more just kind of general care of people and Correct, yeah, medical that's care. That's kind of the way that one was uh, structured. My senior year in um, residency, I went to Uganda uh, with another uh, co-resident of mine as well as one of my attending physicians. And that we operate every day, and that was orthopedic heavy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, there was lots of people in the community, um, as well as people that would walk from miles around just for the opportunity to be seen. Oh, I bet. So it I was, bet. that was a lot of, I'm sure, deformity and neglected fractures and things like that. It's yeah. un unbelievable the yeah. amount of, of, of deformity and things like that, and a lot of traffic accidents, a lot of bicycles, motorcycles, not a lot of traffic laws. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and you have to get. Not a lot of seatbelts, probably. No, no. Yeah. You gotta get very creative with your fixation. They don't have a lot, a lot of resources. Right. Um, yeah, it is amazing with, uh, I mean, I would imagine I've never done anything like that, but just reading and thinking about that, uh, that how the United States is such a land of plenty. We have so much wastes and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, we're, we have excellent medical care, but just there are places that have absolutely nothing. Yeah, and it it, it was good to, to see that. And I, the, the doctor that we went with, she had done that uh, many, many years before. And every year thereafter, and that was the first time we went with her, and we brought... I don't know, 10 maybe suitcases worth of supplies that we had been collecting, that she had been collecting. Yeah. And, and implants, instruments, everything. And, and boy, were they grateful. It was great. Oh, I bet. It's amazing. So what does, um, you know, an orthopedic traumatologist or an orthopedic trauma surgeon, what do they, what's their scope of care? So it's kind of a wide range from simple injuries to more complex injuries, um, many of which uh, a general orthopedic uh, surgeon can, can deal with as far as fracture care injury care, things like that, but there's definitely a subset of injuries and more complex things that uh, may be best suited for a, a traumatologist. Mm -hmm. um, more complex injuries, fractures around the, the pelvis, uh, fractures around the joints, things like this, um, and other multiply injured patients. Yeah, so there's physiologic problems too with some of these with uh, what we call polytraumas or a lot mm -hmm. of uh, multiple injuries like we think of car accidents and you know when I think of uh, orthopedic trauma or trauma general surgery too I think of like the adrenaline packed like uh, trauma bay in the ER and um, kind of like what you'd see in Grey's Anatomy and things like that is that kind of what it's like for you when you're called into a you know a fresh <laughs> motor vehicle accident something like that where somebody's really kind injured of, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think um, Grey's Anatomy might be a little over glamorized to a degree but yeah. as far as you know adrenaline pumping and, and kind of fast pace yeah and yeah. that's that's partially what drew, drew me to it right um, I think that orthopedic trauma is a, a fair mix of excitement and stress yeah, um, but everyone kind of has their role, and it's kind of an organized chaos, and it's, it's something that I I appreciate. Tell us about that that role. You know, you're in the there's a, there's a big trauma bay. Um, there's you know several nurses in there. There's some general surgeons who are specialized in trauma. Some residents that are studying under them, helping out. And there's um, like the EMTs that are around. What's that kind of like? What's the um, give and take? And how are you? evaluating things and giving orders and stuff yeah. during that time so I mean from the paramedics bringing them in and giving us reports um, it's all very very organized as far as who's the team leader you have the recorder have the trauma nurse have the residents obviously helping and everyone kind of <clears throat> knows their place um, orthopedics takes a little bit of a peripheral role initially so that that primary survey can get done and any life-threatening injuries are, are triaged appropriately 
and then I kind of work and interact closely alongside that trauma surgeon in order to kind of uh, coordinate care based on orthopedic injuries, um, wounds, splinting, things like that that need to be taken care of when, when appropriate. Mm-hmm. What are some um, life-threatening injuries that you know are orthopedic in nature that you know we might not see as a general orthopedic surgeon or a sports surgeon or something? Sure. What is an uh, we don't typically think of a broken bone as being life-threatening, but what is a life-threatening orthopedic injury? So there's not. Uh, I can't say there's too many uh, life-threatening necessarily uh, orthopedic injuries, but I think. Uh, pelvis fractures uh, with hemorrhage or excessive bleeding mm-hmm. uh, can definitely be uh, fatal fairly, fairly quickly, usually from high-energy injury, uh, motor vehicle accidents, motorcycle falls. Um, but these injuries, if they're not tended to quickly enough and the patient's bleeding, can, can easily become fatal. Let's, yeah, let's be, before you go on to anything else, um, a lot of times these are high-velocity high injuries, right? And they're crushing injuries one way or the other, like mm-hmm. side, sideways crush the pelvis or front to back. Sure. Um, where are they bleeding from? In, in those type of injuries, you know? Right, yeah, and that's a, that's a good point and as far as the mechanism, <clears throat> mechanism of injury has uh, important um, kind of predilection on the, the injury pattern and what may be uh, bleeding. Um, but a lot of these have a venous uh, component of, of bleeding and that's when kind of pelvic packing comes in to kind of c- control or tamponade some of that pelvic uh, bleeding. Arterial injury is also possible as well and that would necessitate uh, typically interventional radiology mm-hmm. and they'd offer you know things like uh, embolization to control the bleeding. So and pelvic packing would be a general surgeon open, making an incision somewhere and putting in some sponges just to hold things from to tamponade them and squeeze them off so they don't bleed into the pelvis anymore? Typically yes and it's not done at every institution it's preferred by some not by others other people do you know pelvic binders x-fix mm-hmm. the IR right away um, but yes it is a very um, alive and well practice that mm-hmm. you know, a quick laparotomy, six sponges, tamponade the bleeding, close it down, and then within 24, 48 hours come back. Mm-hmm. And so things that you might do though, you know, I mean, you could make that incision and go down and pack it, but things that you might do in that trauma bay, you, t- you alluded to one of them, one might be an external fixation device. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for what we call vertical instability in a pelvis where it's like sheared up. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you do to mm-hmm. try and line those up to get things to stop bleeding and get everything lined up? Yep, so if, if there's any any threat of life-threatening bleeding and there's massive transfusion protocol, et cetera, and a binder goes on right away. Regardless so the, of the, the binder is uh, around the, the, the greater trochanters on the sides of the hips and it squeezes the pelvis shut, right? Correct, so the, the, the theory there is uh, to control the pelvic volume. So as the bleeding gets more and more severe, the pelvic volume kind of expand with it, and you're losing more and more blood. Uh, blood pressure goes down, et cetera. So if we can control that volume by compressing that pelvis. How long can that stay on, that binder, typically? Some people leave it on for a few days. I, I would leave it on for no more than uh, 24 to 48 hours at the most and try to convert that to an X-fix if yeah. I could. Yeah. Um, so other thing, you talked about embolism. So you could tell us about that. You know, the radiologists, what can they do? Yeah, so our interventional radiologists are great. Uh, just accessing uh, an artery, whether it be in the, the groin, um, going up with a small catheter, using dye, kind of shooting through the, the, uh, the arterial system, and then under x-ray uh, in the operating room, um, kind of finding and identifying any one of those vessels that may be injured and kind of actively bleeding. Mm-hmm. Then go in and, and coil them or, or stop the blood loss. And then uh, something that you don't typically deal with, but uh, spine injuries can be mm-hmm. fatal, right, too? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't put on, I'm sure you did in residency, put on the halos and yep. all that stuff but, uh, and do traction, but we don't do that typically now. It's more the spine surgeons and the neurosurgeons. Yeah, and you know? I, I work closely with the neurosurgeons downtown to, mm-hmm. um, for some of these combined injuries yeah. that we've had with uh, kind of lumbosacral instability that we've done cases together. So. Yeah. 
Um, what about uh, when we're on call, uh, you can have an open fracture too or a limb-threatening injury. What do you see? I mean, you can see the gamut of injuries, but for limb-threatening injuries, what do you see? Um, so you kind of alluded to one already, the open fractures. Um, well, maybe not necessarily immediately life-threatening. If there's arterial injury and there's you know active bleeding, that could that could become a problem if a tourniquet's not placed and blood loss is not kind of corrected. Um, long-term for an open fracture could also be infection, things like this, mm -hmm. that over time mm -hmm. could end up taking the limb or have a limb salvage type of picture, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, compartment syndrome could also be a, a limb-threatening type of injury. Tell us about that briefly. Uh, it can be from a, a myriad of causes, crush injuries, fractures, most common, usually it's in the tibia or lower leg, um, but it can cause excessive pressure in, in a compartment that kind of squeezes the muscles, that the tendons, the nerves, the blood vessels, and it kind of restricts blood flow, and it can actually cause damage to the those structures causing them to die off and causing permanent dysfunction. And your treatment for that would be for the compartment syndrome? We call it fasciotomy, which is a rather urgent procedure in order to kind of release that pressure and allow that, uh, that tissue to kind of calm down and restore the blood flow. So you release that tight covering over the muscle and let it kind of breathe. Exactly you know, right. They might need plastic surgery later to cover it up or things like that. If it's opposable, great. If not, plastic surgery, yeah. Um, you know, something that kind of came into vogue maybe 15, 20 years ago and is still somewhat in, I mean, there's appropriate places to use it, but I know some people are doing other things now. It would be damage control orthopedics. It used to be that everyone would rush to do everything right away. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what the term means, damage control orthopedics, and where it plays yeah. a role in your practice? Yeah, great question. It's, uh, it's definitely something that's evolved over the last several decades. Uh, just being very involved in orthopedic trauma, in the 50s, it was that early total care mantra, which it was rush to get them fixed. It's, they're too sick not to operate on. Um, whereas in the late 80s, early 90s, it became damage control, which is uh, they're too sick. We can't operate on them right now, but we need to stabilize the orthopedic injuries while the patient's uh, condition uh, improves and allows us to take them to the operating room safely. Mm -hmm. So um, what are the things like, what type of systems or injuries would you look at and say, boy, this patient is going to be in trouble if I operate on them? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What do you look at there? Yeah, so immediate things, just abdominal pelvic injuries, uh, internal bleeding, head injuries are a very, very big one, as well as chest injuries. Mm -hmm. Lung injuries mm -hmm. is, is very important. Uh, that can easily cause very big problems with anesthesia and operation, so that needs to be avoided. Yeah. And those are the markers that we look for with lab values and such. So what, um, like lactate levels? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So mm -hmm. lactate, uh, base excess, base deficit. There's obviously some newer ones that academic centers use, interleukins and Right, kinds, right, exactly. More for studies, maybe at this point. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you're, you know, you are the general surgeons are managing these, um, you know, visceral injuries and putting chest tubes in and uh, you know taking out a spleen and supporting them medically too, and you're doing things like um, in the early phase of damage control, you might put an external fixator on a broken bone to prevent the bones from grinding around. Sure. Uh, maybe splint something or put it in traction. And then you have to keep a close eye on these guys too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to see them once or twice a day and examining them until you can figure out when you can finally fix them. Exactly. Serial exams, as soon as we can get that bone, that injury, temporized with an external fixator, in which case it, it needs more rigid fixation. Um, you alluded to a vertical shear pelvis injury before, so that would be a good one for traction. So mm -hmm. the felt pelvis is sheared mm -hmm. up, we can kind of bring that down. But any way to temporize those injuries prior mm -hmm. to getting back into the OR safely and keeping an eye on their soft tissue, their skin, their swelling, things like that. Yeah, and you talked about the serial examinations, which is it's very, so important because even once, a lot of times these people aren't awake for one thing. You know, they're either sedated or they're unconscious. And then 
you know, they a lot of times have an overriding injury where they might have a open like a bone sticking through their arm here that yeah. all their attention's on and maybe it won't be a day later they don't even realize they have a broken ankle too so uh, we have to do those primary surveys and secondary and tertiary surveys. It's not uncommon to have those distracting injuries and find an ankle fracture the next day after a femur that we fix. It's, right. It's right. very common but it just requires vigilance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could change like one behavior to make either patients less likely to have terrible injuries this is a uh, so a, a patient behavior Either patients have less likely to have terrible injuries or more likely to heal better, what would it be? So I think the former is going to be kind of hard. Uh, as far as avoiding injury, I think there's certain things that are unavoidable or non-modifiable as far as accidents. We're always going to have traffic accidents, falls, things like that. Obviously, seatbelt laws and helmets, if we could make that a law mm-hmm. in different states, obviously, could help. Um, I'm not sure how I would address that. Um, Do you ride a motorcycle? I did. <laughs> I mean, that's where I see the majority of my terrible, terrible things are motorcycles. Is that fair? Yes, yes, I'd say that the... I'm not going to put you on the spot. The like, motorcycle accidents are, 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 a, are a bit more... Obviously, we're not going to litigate that people can't have motorcycles, but uh, <laughs> that's one thing I think of when I think of my terrible patients. That, not terrible patients, but terrible injuries is motorcycles because there's no protection. But you were going to say maybe a patient factor that could help them heal better or something like that? I, I it's, it's very multifactorial for me. I feel like just being... Vigilant in the patient's care uh, is, is very important. These, these patients have sometimes a lot of psychosocial issues that they're working through. Uh, a lot of them have substance abuse issues, home yeah. issues, um, living issues. And I think that much of my work kind of comes after they leave the operating room as far as helping to coordinate some of this stuff. And it's, it's hard. They won't always ask for it. Yeah. But uh, I think that if we're not an advocate for them, um, we tend to do worse. As far as a patient behavior, that's a very good question. I, the one thing I think of is smoking, but oh, smoking, yeah, you know, that's a real um, as as detriment to, yeah. to healing. So if we could get everybody to quit smoking, I think they would heal their yeah. um, incisions better and their and their bones better. But For um, sure, um, I did. That was the next question. That was about the psychosocial type things that you deal oh. with. Like, what percentage of would you say? Um, it's it's remarkable how much uh, you know homelessness or mental illness or substance abuse has to do, I mean, you, you've got a pretty high percentage of patients that get injured from that. What percentage of your, I don't even know, know how to put you on the spot about that, but it is a big deal, isn't it? It is, it is, and I I don't know if it's necessarily fair to, to quantify it or put a number on it, but there's, yeah. there's a lot of, of patients that you, you may not even know are homeless right away and decently put together and all of a sudden it comes out later in their course that they might need help and they haven't asked for it. And, I think those things are very important that we get social work involved, sometimes psychiatry so, and uh, other referrals that we can make. Um, so there's resources in the hospital while yeah. you've got these people, you know, captive while they're recovering. You can you can have them so to speak. seen, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not captive, but uh, there's, um, you've got your social services like you alluded to, mm-hmm. psychiatry. Um, do they have, like, a substance abuse counselor, too, at, the, at Methodist? There is an option for that. Some of those arrangements need to be made. Um, there's also a chaplain that helps quite a bit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually helped quite a bit of people out. Great. Um, other avenues, which I find kind of, uh, kind of fell into serendipitously in my clinic, was a few patients I'd, I'd helped um, that were recovering addicts offered their assistance to any of my patients that might oh, need wow. to get through and like to be advocates for, for that, which was actually helpful. That's incredible. Yeah, it yeah. just kind of came to light during the, the course of the past year or so. That's great. So, so um, what uh, if you're not working, what do you like to do? You know, do you, what do you like to do outside of work? 
Sure, yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love to bike quite a bit. So when I was out in Reno and Tahoe, I uh, did a lot of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Got into it there. A lot of skiing, a lot of snow sports, um, things like that. The tinkering and the car work I did like to do in the past. Haven't done much of it mm-hmm. recently, but you guys get vacations off together where you, I mean you're both physicians can you find time to go on I mean not during COVID obviously sure, but yeah. uh, do you guys take trips places yeah. we try to coordinate our time off and her uh, her family's from the area which is what what brought us back to Iowa initially um, so we definitely need to go go see them and see my folks in Chicago so did you pick up any languages when you were over in Africa you know, we actually learned Swahili did um, you really it, enough to communicate while we were there and I feel like I've lost just about all of it obviously oh, wow. basic words but Having that book and communicating with them was, was tremendous. That's impressive. Very humbling, yeah. Well, Dr. Nielsen, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate all your knowledge in this uh, fascinating topic. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Joint Effort, a podcast from Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. If you have questions about this podcast and wish to schedule an appointment with a surgeon, call 515-224-1414 or visit dmos.com.